What's the Ultra opposite of astonished? Oh, yes. Road bike. You know the ones they've got in Giro? The yeah. curved ones. I've bought one oh, of those. Things are going well on Team Hughes. I know, absolutely. Not as well as a Team Wayne. No, no. Less said about Team Henry, the better. Um, shall we? Monday. It's not know, ten, don't you? Um, Emma, welcome. Thank you. Um, episode eleven of Taking Stock After the Bell. It's a wee bit of a tight squeeze today, but we don't mind that, do we? Um, Emma Mogford is the fund manager of the Premier Mountain Monthly Income Fund as well as the Premier Mountain Optimum Income Fund. Um, you joined Premier Mountain in November 2020 from Newton. We are the lead manager on the BNY Mellon UK Income Fund um, and also worked on the Newton Global Income Strategy and the BNY Mellon Continental European Fund. Um, Emma is also a CFA charter holder. Um, neither Husey nor I are CFA so if you just want to talk between the two of you for the rest of the show well we did we did discuss we did discuss me doing my CFA this week and you sent me a winky smiley face and then and then a thumbs down I thought that was I mean we've got so like we've got this little group chat I thought that was slightly passive aggressive from Johnny you two morons want to tackle the CFA okay subtle wink and a nod um, how are you keeping? Good? Yeah, very well, thank you. Yeah, how, thanks for having me. How is life in UK equity income land? Yeah, no, well, it's all right. I mean, we had a good year last year. 2022 was good for, for UK markets relative mm-hmm. to, to other markets, uh, albeit that it was a hard index to beat. Uh, I think 88% of, of fund managers uh, struggled to keep up with the FTSE all share, and I was one of the few that, that managed to do, do a bit better. So so that was nice. Um, to you. And yeah, very happy to uh, do... We're running the fund at Premier Mighton. Um, very excited about about the future. So, brilliant. Good and, and tell me just before we get into UK equities, because that's what we're going to do. Do something a little bit different today. Usually we jump around the houses a little bit, but given we've got an actual real life UK equity fund manager, we thought we'd do a little bit of a deep dive in UK stocks. Tell me, tell me a little bit about how you sort of got into fund management originally, and and yeah. Well, background. I started with a degree in zoology. Mm-hmm. Uh, dissertation on the intelligence of rooks relative to chimpanzees, you wow. know, the kind of natural path into uh, into finance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but look, I was really interested in world news and global politics, and um, you know, I did some work experience, and I just thought, wow, you know, this this is really fascinating. Um, and so when I got the opportunity to join uh, Neptune as as an analyst, uh, I thought, you know, great. Uh, you know, I'll go and I'll learn, and maybe, uh, maybe at some point I'll decide I want to, you know, do something else, uh, and just loved it. You know, Amazing. I kind of thought, oh, I'll do this until I work out what I want to do when I'm older, and then and it just suddenly <laughs> dawned on me that this was exactly what I wanted to do when I was older. What was that? So it was rooks versus chimpanzees. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what's, yeah. what's a rook? Oh, sorry, like a crow, like a you know, in the corvid family, like jays and magpies. And okay, it's just there. Yeah big blackbirds um, and they pair bond for life and they're very good at uh, this was looking at tool use um, uh, so I gave them lots of um, like sw- smarties packets that they had to get into and anyway to precursors right. for tool this use is, this is absolutely <laughs> it's off topic but sorry, it was, it was... This, <laughs> yeah. this is fantastic well, we've, so, got, we've got Johnny's a farmer as well so he, I'm sure he can add some colour some, to some, something I mean I guess you could sort of look at the animal kingdom and sort of have some 
cross over to market participants and how they deal with emotions of oh, data no but i i do i genuinely do love that i sort of did yeah. experimental psychology yeah. in year two of my degree and i think the psychology of, of markets is fascinating but also how we as fund managers can control our biases and mm. and you know we've got a number of disciplines that we use on the fund to make better investment decisions and i'm yeah mm. a big very yeah, behavioural bias, biases, and, and 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 sort of learnings from young, and just experiences. It does. Could be. It's hard work to to sit there and think outside the box sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. And try and try and steer yourself away from from what you feel comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, good investment decisions are often uncomfortable ones. Definitely. It's when it's out of favour. It's yeah. when the market's saying it's unloved. Yeah. It's when the news flow is negative, and you know that's the that's the valuation opportunity in uh, in my world anyway. So it's yeah. Absolutely, we're we're gonna get on a wee bit on that because I wanted to pull on that particular thread. But before we do, um, UK stocks, you've sent us over a couple of charts. If we just want to touch on these first. Yeah. Um, so this is the valuation of the UK market relative to the states, which I think put together from Faxit, John. Faxit, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Historically wide discount at the moment. Yeah, uh, exactly. And I think a lot of people talk about the UK being cheap, but they sort of miss how cheap. Um, so today, you know, the P of the UK market is around 10 times, the US market is 19 times. Um, and so, you know, UK stocks are basically half the price of, uh, of US um, stocks. And then, and, and, you know, let's not forget that that discount was as little as 6% um, back in 2016. So, you know, this is a relatively recent... Was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you can see on the chart that the kind of gap was much smaller, that's 6%, and the gap today is nearly 50%. And it's essentially, a, you know, an investor saying, um, I am willing to pay twice as much for $1 of earnings for a company listed in the US mm. as I am for a company listed in the UK. And that to me just, it just can't, you know, it can't be right. Um, and I think we can talk about it, a number of factors why, you know, why that is the case. But for me, it's a very, very compelling valuation opportunity. And it's also, you know, worth reminding ourselves that when we talk about US, we're also talking about global funds because the MSCI kind of world benchmark is about, yeah, 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 70, 66, 70% uh, US equities. So, so, you know, we're making a really stark contrast between what the average stock in the world benchmark is and, and, and the UK. Yeah. In terms of the, probably the effect of this is going to come out a wee bit as we move forwards, given what you know, oil prices and things are doing, but how much of the earnings side of the equation in the UK has been inflated, I suppose, is the, is the word to use by rising commodity prices we've obviously got quite a, a resource heavy type index is that a fair comment yeah um i i think that you know that is that's certainly right and that has boosted so you've got uh energy making up around 10 percent of the uk market mm. you've got miners making up maybe another seven percent um and no doubt you know their earnings have been strong in the in the last year or two but i think actually you see that gap starting to widen before um you know before that that came in and yes. we're only talking about you know, 17, 20% of, of the index being kind yeah. of directly related. Um, so, so I think there is, I think there's more to, to the discount. Um, than I think just, I've seen some analysis from Schroders and unfortunately we don't have it, but if you, if you X out the sector composition differences, i.e. resources versus tech on a stock for stock on a sector for sector basis, the UK market is about 25% cheap. Yeah. Versus yeah. the US. I've seen the same analysis. Yeah. Not, I mean, you must, if, if you go back to 2016, 
2015. I mean, <laughs> we won't mention the B no, word no, again. No, um, I mean, Microsoft, as an example, was probably on a PE of. Was that 12, 13 times back then? Yeah, or was that slightly before that? Yeah, but we've had a massive amount of. Apple kind of, was on 12 times in those days. Yeah, yeah. we've had a massive amount of PE expansion from the big companies. Mm. Um, it's not just the big companies, mm. it's you know, across the board. And um, we, all, you know, we talk about it a lot in terms of the S&P being a different construction, it's full of slightly different businesses in the UK. But as Emma said, if you, you know what you said, if you're comparing like for like businesses within the same sector, there are still massive mm. differences. In even even Shell versus Exxon. Shell. Exactly. Shell's yeah. a massive discount today. Not, not, not the ask the bleedingly obvious question, but why? Is that discount? That's definitely pointed at Emma. Shell and Shell and Exxon are cracking. Maybe Exxon, because you've got them in their anti ESG, aren't they? I mean, it's probably a little bit of an overhand there. Go with Chevron. Chevron, sorry, mm -hmm. Shell and Chevron. Yeah. Oil companies, global, pretty similar businesses, yeah. but there's a discount there. So, you know, yeah. Why? Why a 40% discount? Yeah, no, I, I agree, and you can see it in lots of different sectors. Um, I mean, I think we can we can talk about kind of how it's come about. Um, you know, I think you know, the Brexit vote and, and politics, you know, not just Brexit, actually. I think it was, you know, it was it was Corbyn and it was, you know, it was other kind of political um, instability that, that have sort of put off global investors. I think it's been outflows from from UK equities. Um, and yeah, which we were going to come and look at, which um, so this is showing retail um, ownership of my sector, the UK equity income sector, which has fallen um, to a third of its level, um, or a third of where it was a decade ago. Um, but I think more importantly has also been the institutional allocation. And so we know that the likes of the pension funds and insurance companies have reduced their allocation to UK equities from 50% to just 4% today mm -hmm. so there's been a lot of, of selling of, of UK equities and that's that's pushed the the valuation down um, I think maybe it was also worth touching on the the kind of the chart in between um, which is looking at um, the UK's underperformance in the in the sort of decade plus since the GFC and how that looks relative to interest rates so you know what we know is post GFC we've been in this ultra low interest rate environment until recently and that was a time when US stocks did much better than UK stocks um, and I and I think it's you know it's not a coincidence that you know lower interest rates led to higher valuations for growth com you know, companies with a growth bias, um, companies that were doing buybacks, um, and, and that has favoured um, the US and particularly the kind of large cap um, US. But what the reason I've drawn this chart going back to 1997 is to look at the decade pre the GFC and remind people that actually in that environment the UK outperformed um, the US and we've kind of all forgotten that the UK market could could outperform kind of like a, a long time meaningfully and in that decade you know interest rates were an average of five percent um, so maybe you know if we're going back to a more yeah. normal interest rate environment mm. um, then actually you know you want to be looking beyond uh, the sort of characteristics that did well uh, you, you do see we went through an exercise last year of divvying up market returns UK market returns and international stock returns by periods when inflation is going up and when it's falling okay and what you see is during periods when inflation is going up UK outperforms pretty materially it's almost 
what tends to matter more than the absolute level of inflation is the direction of travel. Okay. Probably tallies back to this. It's a similar yeah. sort of thing. Um, the noughties were a decade of, of pretty firm inflation, wasn't it? And pretty high interest rates. So that all kind of tallies together. And mm. it was an emerging markets commodity story as well, which yeah. is a little bit what we had last year. Mm. Um, do, you, do you say you think the main thing for the reason of, of underperformance is just outflows? I mean, I think that's been a, a major contributing um, factor because the majority of the the, the fall has been in a, a derating. Mm. Um, but we did have we did have good earnings growth in in the US and 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 the UK's earnings growth did you know did lag. Um, yeah. Now maybe that was because they weren't doing as many buybacks, so that obviously helped the US companies um, to kind of print good earnings growth, even if it wasn't actually profit growth. Um, mm. But I think there's been a broader impact of the. Um, the sell-off is that the UK market's just not as um, as vibrant um, a market as, as it has been. So the, the outflows and the, and the derating has had the consequence that um, that companies have looked a little bit more inwardly. So a good example is that if you look at M&A in the 2000s, we were net acquirers of businesses outside of the UK. Right, yeah. Whereas in the, dec- the last decade, we've been acquired you know it's been it's been companies being bought out of the uk rather than us yeah. being netflix so there's also there's other elements where you know growth hasn't hasn't been as strong how do you cite that turn how do you feel whenever a company and obviously it's if a company from your portfolio were to get acquired <laughs> mm. you're going to see a pop in the share price let's put words into your mouth there's a wee bit bittersweet sometimes depending on the price obviously that you're losing yeah. you know we have seen companies coming out of the uk index which i think are world-class businesses yeah it's always a suppose bittersweet as a portfolio manager because you're probably going to find another idea to, <laughs> to replace that so yeah um double-edged sword maybe i think so and i think at the moment because the valuations that we see in our companies are so low that you know you worry that something's going to get taken out at a 30 or 40 percent mm-hmm. premium um but actually it's worth you know 70 or 80 percent more than mm-hmm. than the share price or, or more um i think look for me it's not a big problem it what it does is it brings forward that that upside which is you know which is nice to have yeah. we just book it and um i think it would be a problem if we then couldn't find a, an idea to replace it um, but again, because the market is, I see, so attractive, you know, we've got a long watch list and, yeah. and there are opportunities to recycle that capital into other things that, are, you know, we similarly mm. kind of see big upside in. So I don't, it's not, yeah, it's not a concern for me, but it is certainly, I think it should be a concern for um, for kind of the UK market as a whole. And we should be thinking, you know, what could government do? What could we do to, to you know, to, to kind of... Um, lift up valuations so that on a global stage we you know we're, we're, we're our companies are better um, are better valued and, and therefore can raise capital and can spend more on capital projects and can create jobs you know it's all there's kind of lots of good stuff that comes out of um, being at a higher valuation sure um how how much of a proportion of the UK who owns the UK stock market what I mean by that is domestic investors versus overseas i'm going to hazard a guess that the proportion of domestic has risen because if you're a global equity manager probably looking around the world the uk market has become easier to ignore a because it's falling as a proportion of your benchmark and b because we've had our own idiosyncratic issues as an economy and we all know the economy is not the stock market but if you're a global manager it's probably easier to sort of look past i guess Mm. um do, do we know 
I've seen some stats that suggested that that um, people that it outside of the UK owns more UK equities than than people who live in the UK. But I wouldn't want to hang my hat on no. on those statistics because I don't know whether that was kind of looking at institutional mm. or retail. I think the the um, you know the important thing to say is that our market is quite different in that investors can invest overseas with very low barriers. So if you live in the US and you want to invest outside, you know, in, in a UK equity, you have to fill in a hundred forms mm. and you have to mm, refill indeed. in those forms every year. Whereas um, you know, so they, they there's a real strong emphasis on investing in US equities, as is the case in Australia and Canada. Whereas a UK investor, we kind of open our doors and say, go and buy you Nintendo know. or you know whatever. You, don't know what I thought of Nintendo actually, but you can buy <laughs> Microsoft. You know, yeah. as long as you fill out your WFN, I mean, it's not massive barriers to entry. You don't yeah. even have to fill it in, do you? It's only to get the to get the tax base. Yeah. yeah, that's a fair point. I never thought. I didn't no, realize I that. that. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think we should follow suit? Yes. I'm so. sorry. I mean, I'm asking. <laughs> I'm asking. Yeah, manager. A UK yes, equity manager says, um, <laughs> yes, that we should invest more in UK equities. Uh, no, but I think, um, I think that we have got ourselves in a situation where our current, you know, our market is, um, is undervalued and there are consequences for the economy as a result of that. And actually having a strong, vibrant UK domestic market and our, you know, you can see that if you look at market cap as a proportion of GDP, which has come yeah. down, whereas it's gone up for places like the US and Canada mm-hmm. and Australia. And actually, I think, you know, there is some circularity to actually, if we could lift our market cap as a proportion of GDP, there would be knock-on benefits for, for the economy. Brilliant. Um, do you think, and again, it, it's, <laughs> it's probably the wrong question to ask a UK income manager, but talking about share buybacks, do you think, you know, across, across developed markets, we probably pay the highest level of dividend income. Hmm. Do you think there should be a better blend of that, whether that's reinvesting more into businesses at, at arguably high returns than, than a paid out, or do you think we should be a bit more relaxed on, on share buybacks? Because I was sort of, I don't know why, but, but I think when I started, share buybacks were frowned upon and we'd always say, well, we'd much rather the cash so that we can do what we want with um, you know, the dividends. But it is support, obviously supportive of, sh- of, of share prices. Mm. Well, what, what do you think? Yeah, well, there's actually a lovely segue into a chart that here's one I prepared earlier, <laughs> um, which is if you go back to the, the 1930s, you know, dividend mm. has been a really important part of shareholder total return. And I think that's where the heritage and the history of the UK market mm. placing such an emphasis on, on rewarding shareholders through a dividend rather than through buybacks and earnings growth is it comes from Um, so that's why we do it and we can talk about then whether it's a good idea Um, I think the reason that we're asking the question particularly today is that if we look at the last decade so the 2010s and then the kind of three years after that the proportion of total return from dividends was just kind of 20 percent whereas actually the average looking back through the decades is 63 percent so so historically it's been really important the last 15 years it's been less important and so now we're sort of saying oh well actually is it is it right going forward for me um the future and we can talk about why but but if we are going back to a world that looked a bit more like pre-gfc than post-gfc and and we've got interest rates going back to kind of normal levels um and we don't just have returns so the the last 15 years 
you know, if your total return's not coming from dividend, you know, it's coming more from rate, either earnings mm. growth or, or from re-rating. And I would say a lot of it's come from this kind of re-rating of markets. Yeah. And that can't continue forever. So if we go back to a world where ratings stay the same or come down, don't go up any further, then actually dividend yield's gonna be really important again and income's gonna come back to the fore. Um, so I don't think that we should be messaging to companies to say, you know what, actually you have this kind of strong payout policy, we'd rather that you took some of that cash and, mm. and, and bought back your own shares, albeit that there are some ex exceptional um, standouts where the company shares are so cheap that actually there is a there is a compelling argument to say that buybacks yeah. in that situation are, you know, are, are warranted in addition to, to dividend. And the last thing I'd say on that is there's some quite good evidence that company management that are forced to pay a dividend it actually encourages good capital allocation decisions. I was going to ask you about yeah. this. Uh, it just caught my eye in your in your most in your recent most recent sorry annual letter about this sweet spot. I think is the term that you use of dividend yeah. payments between two and eight percent. Can you talk a little bit about that? And what your sort yeah. of research shows about companies that pay those sorts of levels of dividends and performance? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it was really interesting because it's something that I. I believed for a long time, but wanted to kind of back it up, which was, you know, companies with a dividend yield of less than two are therefore in the most expensive part of the market. Um, and, you know, you'd expect the most expensive part of the market to do a bit worse, perhaps because um, you, yeah. your starting point is is, mm -hmm. is, is higher. Um, and then companies with a dividend yield of above eight, ten percent, you're getting into the kind of deep value territory. Distress. And distress. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, and there are some fund managers who are really good at that. And they, they do outperform, but it's just a harder part of the market mm -hmm. to do well in because you've got companies that are, as you say, distressed and um, are in trouble. And and so what was fascinating is when I asked SOCGEN to run it through their database over the last you know, 40 years and they looked at three year returns um, uh, for, you know, for all their stocks with a starting dividend yield in different kind of dividend yield categories is that actually things that had a dividend yield between two and eight were where you got kind of consistent good returns, but it was the most expensive, mark, you know, kind of zero to two, which had less and then yeah. the kind of eight to 10 and 10 plus, which had less again. So it just made sense, you know, and I think a lot of income managers are swayed by to this kind of behavioral bias idea of, of they have this sort of mental accounting and bucketing and they kind of go we're gonna have some stocks over here for capital growth yeah. and we're gonna have some stocks over here for to deliver on our income target and what they don't realize is they've just made their job twice as hard as actually if they just said every stock has to do some capital growth and every stock has to do income um, and stayed inside the, the income sweet spot yeah, yeah something I'm keen on. Um, first thing I'd say to you is lucky you you've sort of had an idea of what you thought the data was going to show and yeah. it actually worked whereas when I sit down to write something I write it think that I know the conclusion see the data and it's completely different so uh, <laughs> I usually have to wrap it up and start again so uh, yeah look at you it's probably why I've not got a CFA and you do um, just on the um, just Johnny, Johnny's staying remarkably quiet isn't he he's no his data obviously backs up his argument as well. So. <laughs> um, just on just on the portfolio construction, because you, you've mentioned it a couple of times, Emma. Um, quite a systematic approach. Mm -hmm. Whenever I sit in front of a fund manager, the, the two questions I always sort of want to ask is about position sizing. Yeah. How you do that? Cause mm -hmm. I think that's really hard, and I think your hardest job is selling knowing yeah. when to sell and I know you've got quite systematic approaches to, to both of those so do yeah. you want to just tell us a little bit about how you think about that yeah no thank you I always 
you know, happy to talk about my my disciplines because um, I think they're a little bit different. And and I guess you know, stepping back, you know, why do we do it? Well, it's about creating a framework where we can make the best investment decisions because as we said you know they can be um you know sometimes the most uncomfortable ones are the best decisions um and also for tra transparency because i think you know in this day and age you know you guys know you're getting increasingly um required to write down you know why did you pick emma mogford as, as a fund manager you know you have to back up the argument and you also want to have the confidence that when i outperform you know i can do it again right because i've got this this process so, so that's sort of why we do it so position sizing um we position size in one, two, three, four, or 5% positions, which is which is relatively unusual. I've met uh, for managers before who have equally weighted portfolios. Yeah. So they kind of do 33 best ideas or 3%. Um, I like that discipline, um, but I wanted to be able to represent, I wanted to be able to have different levels of, uh, of conviction or, mm -hmm. or actually it's more kind of probability of success. Uh, in the portfolio, which is why we've got different sizes. But why have round weights? Well, our first big advantage as an active fund manager is that we can um, benefit from volatility. So if uh, you know we think the intrinsic value of a share is X, then you know we know it's going to fluctuate around that price. And so the ability to top up when something falls, uh, and the ability to 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 kind of trim when it gets a bit um, overcooked in the in the short term is a great um, is a great thing for us to to kind of to benefit from. Um, and it's also one of those ones where the decision's hard. So, you know, let's take a, a 2% position. Um, you know, if it, if it underperforms the market by 10%, falls below a 1.8% position in the portfolio, I'm immediately, you know, thinking, okay, right, is this a situation where uh, the the investment case is unchanged, but it's just a share price fall and great opportunity for me to buy more shares at a cheaper price. Um, but importantly, we're not asking a computer to rebalance the portfolio because sometimes those reviews tell you something that you want to, you know, that's important, that is challenging yeah. your yeah. investment thesis. And so I'd say that happened with um, with Vodafone um, two years ago. And it, it, that exact example, falling from 2% position to below 1.8. And actually we looked at kind of why that was, and it was violating a lot of the investment rationale, which was that returns would get back to an excess of the cost of capital. They kept pushing out the date when that was going to happen. CapEx kept going up. And so, you know, coming to the second part of your question, which is having a sell discipline, you know, we sell the whole position in that situation. So I think a lot of um, fund managers will fall into a trap of being anchored to a particular price. And I know in Vodafone's um, example, I did have, there was one analyst who was saying, oh, you know, but it just, you wait till it gets back to pound fifty. you know, <laughs> like you don't want to sell it today. Or, wait, a number. <laughs> yeah, wait till you get back to pound twenty. you know, where you kind of, and you, and then, I mean, I don't, yeah, the shares today are sort of, yeah, back in the sort of 70s and 80s. It's, it's um, I think it's so important to have that discipline where you just go, nope, you know what, we, we can't bring ourselves to buy any more shares. And if we can't buy any more shares, then you know we don't wanna own any of them. Um, and so we'll sell it. And then just final point on the kind of sell discipline. The other thing we do is we do every stock in the portfolio has got a minimum dividend yield of, of 2% because we wanna be in the income sweet spot. Yeah. And that means that we don't fall in love with our companies. So when the dividend yield goes below two, and you know, likewise, there are probably other valuation metrics that kind of 
showing kind so, of some companies expensive. are so easy to fall in love with oh, they are they are well so yeah so Diageo is an example of that I knew of, do you know what? I was just thinking in my ago. head that was that was the name coming out yeah. yeah so we sold it because they don't yield far below two and we were like that's okay you know we that's can we can approach. pass that over to the growth managers and they may you know make money out of it but we can reinvest it into something you know which is quality at a reasonable price rather than quality at a, a full price we one of the difficult situations that we sort of find sometimes in private client land is where you've got a client who's made money from um, being compensated in stock or has a huge amount of their overall wealth in one name mm. because that anchoring is like on steroids yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if only this thing gets back to a pound a share then yeah. I'll sell half my stake yeah. and I don't know what approach you, you both take but I, I just I sit in front of these people and say, you have got to have a plan. Mm. Yeah. Two things. One, have a plan. Yeah. Two, accept that you, you are not going to nail this. You're mm. not going to get the optimum outcome. Yeah. 100%. I mean, case in point, I was speaking to someone yesterday who works for a US business and um, has a lot of wealth tied up in the business You know, in terms of um, employee shares over periods and then it resets at the end of the year and then it's, if, if she's still there it's high level conversation again if you look at overall wealth in that company versus overall assets probably 50% of her wealth is tied up in, in future pay and relatively new client but probably set up six months ago when that part of the, the, the US market was at much lower valuations and, and the first quarter came and sold it down and obviously the share price today ready for the next chunk to be released is probably probably double maybe slightly more where it was mm. and it's that oh goodness I should have kept the old stake because it'd be worth a lot more and I played it back and said when we sold that stake and I said to you this, your, your holdings can be double the value would you have been happy and she went yeah of course I would I went well there you are this is part of your long-term planning which mm. is we need to continue the process um, until you've got a diversified portfolio away from a company you're not only employed by but you've got 50 percent of your wealth in so mm. i do think it's you have to take you have to step outside don't you and however much you love that business um there are other very good businesses around the world as well mm. um, that's about being being disciplined isn't it and having I think putting a plan in place and sticking to it, and, and you, can, you know, you can review the plan if you want, but ultimately, it's to mm. to have a plan. I mean, going back to Dave's original point, the bigger challenge we have is around CGT positions because yeah. not only have you got to it depends on the company, <laughs> depends on the company, but say there is a big embedded CGT issue, you know, you're not you're not actually distributing the, the, the proceeds equally are you because you've got a big tax position to pay on it and it's then you then the client tends to look at it and go well if I don't think shares are going to fall more than 20% from here or there's more than 20% upside in the other one mm -hmm. then that is the really hard position mm -hmm. um, again someone say it's a nice problem to have but often it's a very stressful problem to have because mm. clients go round and round in circles with it and then I think it just comes back to time horizon. You've just got to say, look, imagine yourself, you know, in 10 years time, in 20 years time, like, what do you want your portfolio to look like then? And then yeah. the path to that. How do we get to that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because on a one year, two year basis, mm. it's much, much harder to make those decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you talk about individual names? Yes, I can. Brilliant. Uh, none of this is investment advice, of course. 
bought Emma Blink twice if I should buy some for my PA <laughs> um, so the one that the one that jumped out immediately he's got his wall hasn't he I'm going to have to keep my eyes really still yeah. <laughs> the PA jumps out from the portfolio obviously yeah. you know it's a, it's a stock that we've talked a bunch about with clients I'm mm. sure I'm sure you two are the same mm. um, obvious name that jumps out of the index given sadly what's going on with the world do you want to talk a little bit about BAE and the opportunity that you see there yeah absolutely and I think the first thing to say is that I think that this while there was obviously a step up in defense spending last year and in the you know subsequently in the share price I think it was up just under 70 percent a lot you know in the one year um, numbers in in 2022 so fantastic uh, performance um, from the shares and I see this as the start of um, over uh, you know over longer term uh, rise in in spending and that's not you know it comes across very negative I'm not trying to anticipate kind of you know that the war continues but I think um, if we think about uh, changing world power and, and, mm. and, and world power balances and I know you've, you've talked um, a few weeks ago on this podcast about demographics and I think that is so important that actually is the rise of China as a, as a defense um, superpower um, you know in that how that plays out against the US and, and in the regions and then you've got India actually rising not far um, behind China um, in terms of, of GDP, they've already overtaken the UK, and, and you know, in, in a few years' time, um, you know, could be sort of third in the in the league tables. Um, it's it's about rising power and how that power is then um, protected, and 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 people will um, build. You know, build defense that gives them security. So it's not about anticipating kind of we're going into a decade of conflicts, exactly. Mm -hmm. But it's we're going into a decade where people are going to re-establish world order, and that's going to require a bit more of um, people. Are, people are collaboration going to be prepared to buy insurance against. Mm -hmm. it, that's what it is. Yeah. Well, we've we've, we've talked up. before about you know the post Cold War kind of safety boom that we've had yeah. in effect. Mm -hmm. Defense spending as a proportion of GDP has fallen in those 30, 40 years. And we've had globalization, which has been yep. deflationary. Yep. So mm -hmm. it's not hard to paint a picture of the world fracturing into two. The net benefits, the marginal gains from globalization coming to an end, i.e. not being deflationary anymore, yeah. and the world splintering, and, and, and therefore countries having to spend more on, mm. on defense as a portion of GDP. And I think that you know, the, the one thing that did jump out at me is that the Germany moving to 2% of GDP spending on military Mm. Um, yes. defense was huge it's a big change in the mm. uh, it's a real sea change in their attitude yeah. since the second world war so you know the thesis is a pretty simple one defense spending globally is going up as a portion of gdp and in absolute terms and mm. bae as one of the top five globally probably yeah. stands to benefit from that yeah. um, and actually we were lucky enough to listen to tim marshall weren't we at a recent event we were at and he's written a prisoner Prisoners of Geography book and the new one I think is Power of Geography and, and as a recommendation actually I think anyone listening should read those books they're mm. absolutely phenomenal but he, he spoke a lot about essentially why you have some of the issues you have in the Middle East um, and why China potentially would look to take Taiwan at some stage mm. um, although actually I think when he spoke he, he was one of the few academics that doesn't that thinks that's less likely to happen now um, post Russia going to Ukraine because of the response that the world has seen from mm. the West um, but, the, but those two books go to explain in so much detail why 
you have these conflicts. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, yeah, he was phenomenal. Really good, and I love how he just shows maps in a different way. You know, it's funny if you turn a map upside down, or, and one mm. picture sticks in my mind was him showing the Chinese, um, you know, sea um, southwards and a row of islands. Um, you know, be, you know, being the Philippines and Japan, and you know, it's this actually being a barrier, you know, to to them getting trade out and and, and being mm. able to access the rest of the world because of this kind of row of islands that are owned by by other nations and and how threatened they feel and it's sort of hard i think living the other side of the world to, to and yeah, you look yeah. at the map and you sort of think oh but there's you know huge chunks of ocean mm. and you sort of forget that actually from where they sit they look out and there is actually you know yeah. quite a hard yeah. line and of course the one in the middle is taiwan yeah yeah yeah, so, yeah. 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 but he, he, he talks a lot about actually about invading taiwan and how hard it would be because you essentially have one beach, which is a, the, the only real landing strip, and then beyond there is very, very steep, a very steep mountainous area, which I had no idea about. But again, I learned so much from his books. Mm. I think they're, um, I think they're a fascinating read. Mm. No, it's, it's a book recommendation for you if you're going away on holiday. Two uh, book recommendations yeah, yeah, yeah. by both. <laughs> <laughs> you on connection, man? Um, I've got a signed version actually. Um, <laughs> house builders persimmon. Yeah. Um, beaten up quite badly. Yeah. Um, probably obvious reasons for that. Uh, mortgage costs, persimmon, I think the point that you made again in the annual letter was quite exposed to first time buyers who yes. tend to be a little bit more leveraged. Yes. Uh, so, you want to talk a little bit about persimmon because that is a still paying a chunky dividend isn't it it is yes so so they've taken the they've cut the special and, the, and they've sort of reset their dividend policy now but it's still it's still an attractive dividend yielding yeah. um stock um and i think you know it's sort of hard it, it is one of those examples where the news flow is it's is pretty bad and mm. you have to as an equity investor say right so how does it get worse from here <laughs> um you know and actually and you know where's the downside and actually you know if i can't build a case where there's where there's significant downside then maybe there's an opportunity in you know with a time frame of 3 to 5 years that actually we're looking back at this time as being kind of a real you know kind of crunch point um of bad news and and maybe you know things will look better in the future and that's that's the opportunity um i think if we if we think then about you know valuation um you know the whole sector is trading now at a discount to book um it's you know significantly cheaper than its sort of 10 year average it's not quite back to gfc style lows but you'll remember back in the gfc we had kind of emergency rights issues and we had companies having to to offload um books of uh, of houses you know today um we've got companies that have all got net cash positions um we've got uh you know a relatively undersupplied with the last three years we haven't built as many houses um as as there's been demand for so we're kind of going into this with 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 a relatively kind of short supply book. So I think the the question then is, you know, how bad does the demand picture get with mortgages in in the sixes? So yeah, your two year fixed um, mm. today is kind of up there at six or or a little above. And so for people refinancing, you know, that's going to be um, a big a big headwind and and you know specifically for persimmon the first time buyers you know that's gonna cause a lot of people to question you know is this the right is time it worth it? Yeah. but i Do think, think sex is like a magic figure where you sort of Drawing numbers, and people probably would have well, said the same at five, wouldn't you? And yeah. it's blown through that. I got my <laughs> I got my letter incidentally from the HSBC oh, yeah? yesterday in the mm. post. Dear Mr. Henry, as interested, I'm on tracker mortgage. Yeah. 
as interest rates have gone up, your payment is moving nice. to. Thanks very much, guys. Yeah. Open a Cheers, Governor. Of wine. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, Cheers, Governor Bailey. Yeah. But the market's yeah. pricing in six and a quarter peak rates, isn't it? Yeah. March next year, yeah. which seems very high. It's a volume game there, Persimmon, isn't it? It's not yeah. necessarily. I'm not sure the market's exactly. saying that house prices are falling 25. percent No. But but, no. but if the mortgage market tightens up and people. Generally, mm-hmm. in the face of uncertainty, people decide not to do anything. Comes yeah. back to animal analogies, rather than the headlights, right? Yeah. So it doesn't take much. What a persimmon normally sell ten thousand houses a year, and mm-hmm. if they sell eight thousand houses this year, that's probably twenty five percent off their profits. And the share price is down what well, loads, but mm-hmm. you, you know you can sort of paint the picture. It's not necessarily the share price is very very sensitive to what's activity in the housing market both ways most of these house builders you've got the land banks as sort of a floor in value so I I think that and land values um, I've got a a very close friend of mine um, um, sort of brokers um, land sales to potential developers and and he said in terms of land values you know the price is going one way up but still it's it's, um, so these land banks are worth a lot of money Mm. still yeah and I think also uh, we forget you know actually the mortgage market is a bit healthier than um, than sort of on the face of it because you know the third of the UK households who who own um, who have a, a mortgage and a, a home mm-hmm. tend to be in the the, the more wealthy um, decile so kind of 50% of mortgages are in the top two deciles the top 20% um, wow. of income um, uh, level so so actually you know the people who are going to be really hard hit by higher interest rates actually surprisingly are renters because a lot of the rental yeah. market is buy to let and they have interest only yeah. um, uh, mortgages on those so, so they're putting rents up you know a huge amount mm. um, actually I think for people who are who are remortgaging or for people buying um, new homes actually what we need to look at is um, the affordability relative to earnings and let's not forget a lot of people have seen wage growth um, in the last couple of years as well I and mean, wages are currently mm. running at, at plus six percent um, and so actually you can look at mortgage affordability and it still you know can be in the high 20s or, or low 30s it can be at a level where people can say oh, actually I still you know I still want to own my own home this is still the right decision for me in the long term um, and you know at some point, interest rates may come down. Mm. Mortgages may not be at six percent forever. No. So, yeah. I, I guess that's. I mean, a really valid point. I guess the calculation still, the way to think of it is, if you were buying said house in a street with, let's say, a twenty percent deposit, ten fifteen percent deposit versus what would it cost to rent that, um, and then work out, you know, look at the calculation of the mortgage repayment versus what the rent would be. And how different those two are, and I'm presuming it's still cheaper to buy and pay a repayment even at six percent than it is to rent the equivalent. Probably Certainly good. would be in Probably some good. areas. Def- it's going to vary, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Want to think about? We're we're so British. Yeah. We talk. It feels like we talk about housing every single week. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, yeah, the economy's based on housing, isn't it? That's yeah. the problem. Well, yeah, I mean, that's why I'm surprised, astonished rates have got to this high because the Bank of England have always been very vocal about not career and that. Well, yeah. whether they are or not, we'll, we'll find out, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. Relatively new addition to the portfolio, I think, next. Yes. Yeah, that's um, right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to talk us through that one a little bit? It's your yeah. favourite company, John, isn't it? Uh, wonderfully managed business next. Um, can, we, can we talk about where you thought about buying them and where Emma uh, did buy them? <laughs> <laughs> 
think about doing a lot of things. <laughs> thinking about it. Don't uh, need to play at every ball. Uh, uh, you know exactly right, David. Oh. Well, that's right. You know, it went from eighty-five pounds to forty-five pounds, uh, which you know, in in the space of sort of twelve months, it's eighteen months. So, um, it's quite amazing sometimes when you reflect on a quality business with quality management. You know, selling clothes. You know, they're a little bit cyclical, but they're not kind of super cyclical. It's just quite amazing actually to reflect that equity markets can have that. So, so talk me through that process, presumably, because yeah. you run quite a tight list, right, of stocks, concentrated yeah. portfolio, you have yeah. presumably a sub-bench of yeah. names, mm. price target potentially, margin of safety, and then it, it you know, sort of, come on, you're substitute come on and yeah and i think so so you know you've got the subspend but you've also got quality stocks that um you know we'd love to own in the future but they're just a long Can't way away yeah. from the valuation and i would say next was like that you know 18 months ago um and and it was really it was that fall back into kind of quality at a reasonable price which is what we're looking for um that that made it jump out to us and then on on deeper dive into to looking at the fundamentals you realize that actually through the pandemic um there was actually a, a destocking of, of clothing um people actually bought less clothes than they they did um in a in a typical year pre-pandemic um so yeah they destocked their wardrobe and it, and it left us feeling that you know consensus were um, looking at sort of high single digit falls in um, in sales this year uh, because of the cost of living crisis um, and and we were saying oh, actually we, we think that's probably too bearish and what's you know come out in the last few weeks is that you know next themselves had guidance for full price sales to fall five percent and they've actually had to come out and say well actually in the last couple of months mm. we've been running at plus nine um, because the weather's been nice but also because of this wage growth point which is that actually as people have seen their wages go up they you know it's gone yeah. into spending money yeah. on, on clothes the, I've, I've um, we were in Greece last week and been through the airports a couple of times and to your point about anic data it's always very dangerous but the airports are packed mm. airports yeah. are packed and when you're going on holiday you need new holiday clothes mm. yeah mm. Um, it's probably not a surprise that they're doing quite well yeah. probably part of it is taking market share as well isn't it? from, from yeah. online businesses that have fallen over or yeah. Well, the capital allocation is so good as well, isn't it? We talked about buybacks earlier, but Lord Orson, who's run it for years, he's really good at deciding to pay a dividend or do a buyback, depending yes. on where he thinks the share price is. Exactly. And then he's bought out, what, a few brands out of insolvency in the post-pandemic period? So, Made.com. Made.com had a market cap of, what, 800 million or something, yes. and he bought it for three? Yes. Three million? <laughs> he bought the intellectual property and the brands and everything in the stock for three million, yeah. which is extraordinary. Yeah, mm. and I think so, he's also had that kind of long-term foresight to see that what a consumer wants um, is a multi-brand platform. They want to be sure about their next day delivery. They want returns to be easy. Mm -hmm. They want the app to be user-friendly, but they don't want just one brand. They want to have access yeah. to lots of brands. Mm -hmm. And so by the kind of the total platform, um, I think that they've grown very well, but they've also got this huge runway for growth as they continue to add brands yeah. into that. Um, Presumably one of the biggest risks is the CEO retiring I know there's supposedly a well he says the market would be the last to know who the successor is but there, there, apparently there is a, a known successor who's sounds, being, like, sounds like the next season of uh, Succession is being written yes. <laughs> Dave, Dave's addicted spoiler alert it's going to be Macaulay Culkin's wee brother from <laughs> <laughs> sorry we're, we're getting on towards wrapping up here and there's a couple of bits I really wanted to ask you um, yeah. if that's okay Please. sadly we're not going to get to the fact today that Nigel Farage has been sacked as a client by Coots 
and <laughs> <laughs> taken on by Netflix. Which I'm as devastated about as anyone. Um, but just just final thing. Listen, um, I'm I'm just writing something at the pen app that I'm gonna put out on Tuesday. But um, all sensible investment strategies go through periods of underperformance. And I'm always curious when speaking with you know professional investors. What do you find sort of helps during those periods where you know your factor or your style of investing is maybe a wee bit out of favour because you know that is an inevitability mm-hmm. for all of us. Yeah. Um, well, I would say that having studied, met some, all the great fund managers out there. No two have been alike in their approach. Or well, process. you've met one more now today. <laughs> Um, it's rare to find two with the kind of the same process and philosophy Um, but what they were all good at is knowing themselves and knowing what their strengths were and then sticking to it through the thick and thin so Mm. I guess my advice to myself and to anyone else is is just to know your strengths and um, to have that conviction that uh, that 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 you stick to it um, when the market kind of tells you you're wrong Um, uh, and I think particularly for me what's been helpful is to try and find evidence you know to back up my thoughts around the kind of the income sweet spot and and then that's just given me that kind of confidence to say okay there'll be times in the market where all the expensive stuff you know with the dividend yield of less than two is going up and um, you know that's certainly you know happened Um, but that's okay because I know that you know over the long term actually kind of quality at a reasonable price has got this sort of evidential underpin um, and, and it works in, in certain market conditions. So the worst thing I can do is, is sort of try and chase a different style, which is not, you know, which is not what I'm good at. Yeah, chase the plastic bag as it gets blown about in the air. Never yeah. catch it, never mm. catch it. Um, yeah. Emma, thank you so much for coming no, on. No, thank you. Hopefully we'll get you on again soon at some stage. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Oh, thank, you. thank you. Thank you for joining us. Folks, we're back in a fortnight, isn't it? Back again mm. in a fortnight. Um, uh, as usual, if you've got any questions, let me know by email. Otherwise, we look forward to, to seeing you again. Thank you.